Well, thanks, Ernest. So great to see you all here tonight as we get to this last section in the series of defining moments we've been working through as a church. Moments where God, through His Word, has brought about times in our lives, the different preachers' lives, um, that have really shaped how we think and how we live and how we act. And tonight I want to tell you about one of those uh, for me. It was May 2007. I found myself running with all my strength, hands pointed like Tom Cruise. On a remote track, uh, away from kind of civilization, through waist-deep water, uh, chasing a passing four-wheel drive that was going through the water a little further on, screaming at the top of my lungs, stop, help, wearing only my underwear. It was one of those moments that I wasn't really planning to be doing that. Uh, I, I wasn't that excited about being in this situation. Finally, I, I caught this four-wheel drive, gasping for breath. I tell the guy, look, I've just driven our car on this access track, and we went through a puddle that ended up being deeper than our windscreen, and now the car's stuck. My wife and 10-week-old son are in it, and it's filling full of water, and I really need your help to come and pull our tow, tow our car out. Now, I was standing there in my underwear because I thought I was really smart. See, if we got stuck on this track and I was wet and all my clothes were wet, it would be really bad. So I thought before I ran and chased this car, I'd, I'd take them off and just be in my underwear. I thought I was super smart, but I was standing there feeling incredibly dumb, incredibly foolish. It was one of the most humiliating experiences of my life. I felt like my manhood was on trial and I'd failed. What's worse, we only uh, saw that car, uh, the one that I chased down, the one that went off to go and get rope, we didn't ever see it again. It never came back. And so we were there waiting. And we were able to get um, cell reception at some point and, and call. And eventually, like a number of hours later, this massive four-wheel drive that looked like a truck came in and towed us out. I don't think I'd ever felt so foolish and weak. Well, fast forward to two years later. It was 2009. And this time, the obstacle wasn't a puddle of water, but an ocean of fear. We'd been seriously considering moving as a family from Sydney to Auckland to start a church here in Auckland. People had encouraged us that we should give this a go, with, that there was need for more Bible-based training churches in New Zealand and in Auckland. And so after a bit of time and thinking, we, we announced to our family, to our friends, to everyone around us that we were going to do this church plant thing in Auckland. We were saying, we'd love you to come and consider coming. We'd love you to tell others about it. We even made a website, auckland2010.com. You can look it up on Wayback Machine a little bit later and see what it was like. But there you go, that was us. We'd, we told everyone we were going to do this thing. We'd been telling people that, and so others were telling people that we're about to do it. And some people that we knew that were speaking at conferences in Sydney and in New Zealand were telling others we're about to start as well. We'd then been assessed by this church planting organization, and they were super keen on us going. I'd gotten a really high entrepreneurial score, and it felt like on the outside that I was keen and brave and ready to go. But underneath, my gut was filled with overwhelming fear because I knew I wasn't the best. I wasn't the best preacher in my year at Bible college. I wasn't the best pastor. And there were people in my year at college that, that were filled full of better leaders and, and better, people with better grades, people who were better evangelists. They said hello when people became Christians. You're like, what is that? Right? There were people who were just so godly in their lives. They cooked dinner every night and studied. I'm like, stop making me look bad. I'm not like that in my family. And I felt like I just wasn't good enough. I felt like an imposter. And that I'd been so foolish to tell the world we're going to move to this country, start a church. Underneath, I felt so weak and incompetent and ungodly. 
Have you ever had a moment in your life where you've felt like an imposter? Like you've got to fake it till you make it or you break it, right? That, that's what happens. Like you're just not good enough. Or as the song goes, you're not pretty enough to how to make this thing happen, to do whatever it is you've got in front of you. At the end of 2009, I may have looked like I had it all together on the outside, but underneath, I just felt foolish. I felt like here we were telling the world we're about to go to Auckland, but I didn't have the goods. And one day it would be shown that I couldn't do this. I knew at some moment that would come to fruition and the rest of the world will see really two of my biggest fears in life, looking weak and looking foolish. Well, it was into that headspace that God really did something quite profound. I'd taken a short contract job at the end of college um, where I had to drive kind of long distances to rural towns doing a, a wireless network survey inside these little shopping center places. We'd walk around with a laptop and test the networks. Previously, I'd been a network administrator, and so I'd kind of knew how to do that. It was, it was a good gig, but I had to drive long distances. Like in a week and a half, I drove 3,000 Ks. It was like a long way, right? But one of the best things with driving is listening to talks. I don't know if you've ever found this. Listening to talks while you're driving is great. Like you come to church and listen, but it's so easy at church to fall asleep, right? I, I see you. Yeah, well, I'm up here, right? It's easy. But when you're driving, you can't fall asleep. You know that, right? The, the things beep at you if you've got a car that beeps. Or otherwise, really bad things happen, and so you stay awake. And actually, they're great opportunities to keep listening to God's Word. And it was listening to a series of talks on 1 Corinthians, that really challenged me. It was where these two experiences of weakness and inadequacy came crashing together and provided what was a defining moment in my life, a moment that gave me just some sense of, of clarity and also confidence about the task ahead. But it wasn't in the way that you might first think. See, I didn't become convinced that I was pretty enough, nor was I good enough or the right person to plant this church. Actually, it was... It was quite the opposite. Listening to God's word in 1 Corinthians, I became convinced that I was totally unworthy for the task. And that, ironically, is what gave me great confidence. So come with me and let me show you what God showed me so clearly in the car that day. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17. It's on the screen. For God did not send me to baptize, says Paul, but to preach the gospel, not with Eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. See, Paul wants to show us what is God's power. That's the first point in your outline tonight. Paul here is writing to the church in Corinth that he evangelized into existence. Now, this church, he's just praised them in 1 Corinthians 1 for having every spiritual gift, like they were the gifted church. You want to see gifts in church? This was it. If anyone was to boast about their suitability for ministry and doing kingdom work, surely it would be this church. Paul says they had every spiritual gift, even the gift of administration, which is in the list. Did you know that? No one ever wants that, but it's there. They probably had it. They had powerful preachers, great intellect, wisdom. There were signs, wonders, miracles, tongues, all sorts of stuff is going on in this church. They wanted God to work amongst them in big ways to show his power. But what Paul says to the Corinthian church is, God doesn't need powerful preachers, miraculous healers, amazing gifts to show his power. He doesn't need an army of incredibly gifted people to bring about his plan. In fact, the things that the world sees as good and powerful and persuasive are actually counterproductive for God's plan and power. 
they empty God's power of its effectiveness. Look at verse 17 again. For God did not send me but to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that, important, the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Do you see that? Paul's saying, I wasn't sent with eloquent words. I was sent to speak of this message. And in fact, I was doing it in a way that wasn't fancy so that everyone would be clear what the power was. And it was the cross of Christ. The power of God here in Corinth that Paul speaks of. The power of God that has changed our lives is the news that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son. That the promised king the Old Testament had been speaking about, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, is Jesus. And that one, God the Son, died. He died in our place. He died for us. If you just stand back for a minute and put on the kind of glasses that let you see the way that the world thinks, the world that sees normal power and normal kind of gifts and skills... The message of the promised king who comes and dies, it's not very powerful, is it? It's pretty pathetic in some ways. It's a bit of an anticlimax, don't you think? Oh, the king's here, but he died. Woo! It's kind of laughable to the world around us. But God says that message is his power. Look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is God's power. News that God the Son died in our place for me and for you, and that He rose again from the dead, that He conquered death and He's coming back to rule again, that He will be the judge of the living and the dead. That is God's power. In one sense, they're just words. A message so simple, a child can understand them, but they are so powerful, they can turn a sinner into a saint. The problem is, we're so immersed in what the world around us sees as powerful that we miss God's power, that we devalue it, that we, we, we kind of pull away from it. See, everything in Christianity, almost everything, looks foolish and weak, doesn't it? I mean, its message is foolish and weak. Those who believe it look foolish and weak. Those who preach it look foolish and weak. It looks to the world around us as foolish and weak. I was driving to church this morning and I noticed this couple walking along on Sunday morning with a pram, little coffees in hand. They had a great morning. And I thought, you know what? These guys, their life is so easy. Look, they're probably looking at the people in the car going, look at them dressed up. Where are they going? We go to church. I get to sleep in every Sunday. People give their money to this, uh, this thing called church. Why would you do that? What a waste of your life. What are you guys doing here? You're literally wasting your lives. You could be at home chilling out. This looks foolish. But the world around us values different things to God. And the world around us misses true power. See, the Jews in verse 22, they... They valued miraculous signs. The Jews had seen incredible things throughout their history as a nation. God bringing them out of Egypt, dividing the Red Sea, putting amongst them a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And they want to see powerful things. 
It's not hard to imagine that, that they wanted to see the power that the Corinthian churches were talking about, this, this plethora of gifts that were there, rolling out flash and pop and great healings and amazing words and powerful exorcisms. That's what they wanted to see. That's where God's power really is. And the Greeks, well, they value wisdom and, and logic, philosophical ideas of freedom, freedom to live however we want, to be progressive, to be on the cutting edge of moral thought and action, to have speakers whose rhetoric and style dazzle and wow their listeners. To our world today, wisdom and wonders look like the power and rhetoric and skill that qualifies leaders for today. But what the world values, God does not. So Paul, in verse 20, lays down a challenge. He rolls out the the poster boys of ancient popularity and power. Look at what he says in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where are they? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? He's saying, where are the great ones? What amazing things are they doing? Are they changing the world? No, they all end up dead anyway, don't they? If we were to kind of apply this to today, you know, and imagine what Paul would say to us, you know, where are the great ones of today? Where has their wisdom and strength gotten them? If he was saying it today, you can imagine, imagine, imagine what God would say to, say, Albert Einstein, one of the wisest people we've ever seen. Imagine the day Albert Einstein came before God. What would that conversation be like between God and Albert? What do you think God would say to him? E equals MC squared. It's pretty impressive, Bert. Pretty impressive. That you worked out the way the world works. You can understand how energy happens. You've got all this intellect. You know, I just said that there'd be light, and there was. But you, know, you, you kind of worked it out. And good on you. But you know what? You still didn't submit to my son. You still didn't see the hope of this world. The one who died in your place and gave you life. Or perhaps the evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, this guy. What would God say to him if he were to come before him? Wow, Richard, there's some pretty convincing arguments. You know, for a moment, I actually thought maybe I didn't exist. <laughs> or the philosopher of this age, who is it that's, that's worked out our age? I was thinking, who is it that's kind of got what we're doing and is coming up with new ideas? I reckon it's this guy, Elon Musk. I recently read his biography, which is really long, by the way. If you read it on Kindle, you don't know how long books are. I started reading. I'm like, man, this is going for ages. I was at page like 340 and it said halfway. I'm like, oh no, this is long. But despite his eccentricities and crazinesses, because he's crazy, right? He's actually driven by this idea that if we're going to survive as, as a people, we need to think about being a multi-planetary people. Humanity needs to exist on other planets. And so he's, that's why he's doing what he's doing, because he wants to get people to other planets. He wants to put us on Mars. He wants to see the Earth kind of sustained by having cars that work that way. He wants to reinvent the car. He wants reinvented the way space travel works. And now into artificial intelligence so that we can help people go forward. He's actually pushing on so many levels. And yeah, he's, he's crazy, right? There's some crazy stuff going on. But he's actually challenging the world around us. He was asked recently what he thinks of the afterlife. Let me quote him to you. I'm okay with going to hell, if that's indeed my destination, since the vast majority of all humans ever born will be there. In other words, I'm doing all this stuff, but if there is a hell, I'm probably going to go there and I don't really care. I'm going to get on with going to other planets. 
See, we can take our best and our brightest, our coolest and our most marketable, the most intelligent and the most powerful. We can put them in a room together. And none of them can reason or think or build or buy their way out of debt. They all die. They always have and they always will. Yet through the foolishness of a Jewish carpenter, nailed to a cross, God saved the world. God made it possible for death not to be our end. A billion nuclear bombs couldn't deflect the wrath of God for what we have done, turning our backs on Him, rejecting Him. But a Jew hanging on a cross did. If you're here tonight and you've not yet come to the place where you're convinced Jesus is the real deal, you're convinced He is God the Son and that He died for you, can I encourage you to come and check out what He has done? To look at the evidence that exists. Don't place your head in the sand to the evidence of historically what he said and did. Actually look for yourself. Don't live your life thinking, I'm wiser than him. I've got stuff more sorted. Actually have a look at his claims. Because to face God's wrath and anger on our own when Jesus has already faced it for us is such a waste. I encourage you tonight. Come and chat to me or chat to whoever invited you here. Actually do something about going, how can I find out more about who this Jesus is and what he's done? This power that has changed the world. On your connect cards that are in your outlines, a little thing on the screen tonight, there's a box you can tick that says, I'd like to chat with someone about Jesus. Maybe, maybe tick that. Maybe make that the moment that you go, look, I want to find out more. Whatever you do, don't just walk away from this phenomenally powerful message and say, whatever. Think about your future. But to our world, this message is foolishness. The gospel, the message of Christianity has always been foolish. In fact, we read about that in the gospels. In Mark chapter 8, there's this moment where Peter has just realized that Jesus is God's promised king. He's like, yes, you're the Messiah. That's who you are, right? And then Jesus says these words, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them, the disciples, that it was necessary for the Son of Man, which is his name for himself, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You can imagine Peter, Jesus, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. I know you're the king of the world. I know you created all things. I know you're God's promised king, but dying's dumb. Don't do it, right? Peter's like, this is a stupid idea. And that's what the world thought of Christianity back then as it does today. In fact, in 1857, they found a piece of graffiti that's dated to around 100 to 200 AD. Uh, this is the graffiti. You might have seen it before. It's called the Alexemenos Inscription. I found it on a wall of some excavation they were doing. And it's a picture of, of a donkey, a jackass, right? Nailed to a cross. And then below the cross here is Alexemenos. You can tell he's Greek by his chin. So he's got that kind of Socrates thinking chin that pokes out there, right? And it's a picture of him kind of bowing down towards this donkey on a cross. And the inscription says, Alexemenos worships his God. And I was like this graffiti, he's going, you are an idiot. Who would worship a crucified king? Like, what an idiot would that be? Here's a part of 
history. Here's a bit of archaeology that shows us the world around in the first and second century thought Christianity sucked just as much as it does today. Christianity's never been cool or hip and popular, and it never will be because the idea at its very core is incredibly offensive to us. It's that we need saving. No one likes to be told we need anything. We like to choose. We like to be the ones who are in control. We like to set our own destiny. What the gospel says is we've rejected the true and living God, and there is only one way to deal with that. And that's a Jewish carpenter who's died on a Roman cross in our place and who will come back to judge the living and the dead. But God's word keeps telling us, do not be ashamed of that message. Because to the eyes of everyone else, it's stupid and shameful. But it is God's power. See, God's power is not found in the brilliant philosopher. It's not found in the the gifted and skilled and amazing communicator that's good at everything. And at that moment in my life, as I thought through what we were trying to do by planting a church here in New Zealand, I I thought that's what I wanted to be, the gifted and skilled and godly and and incredible communicator that would lead others. And, And deep down, I knew that I wasn't. And I thought I needed to be the one that had those skills and abilities. What I, reckoned, what, I, what I saw, what I recognized that day that 1 Corinthians was spoken to me in that talk, is that God's power is not found in anything to do with me. But it's in the news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I, I kept thinking that my suitability for planting a church was based on me. That I wasn't good enough. I wasn't the most gifted, the most eloquent. And, and maybe you too, as you sit here tonight, you feel a similar way. You feel like you're not godly enough to be a Christian. You're not good enough to be a Christian. So you can't be. Or you're not you know, well-versed enough to talk to others about Jesus. You don't know enough about Christian history. You don't know how to answer. And you're worried if you, if you say you're a Christian to others, they're going to ask you questions and you won't, you won't be able to answer those questions. You feel like a bit of, bit of a fraud, you know? You don't think you're a good enough friend or, or, or father or mother or sister or son or daughter to be used by God. You know, you're sitting here and you're filled with this feeling of inadequacy, feeling like an imposter, comparing yourself to others, thinking, I'm not like them, I can't do what they do. You look around the room here tonight and you see others and you think, man, I'm not like them. You know, when God was handing out the gifts, you know, I was way down the other end when God didn't have much left. You know, he's like... Well, sorry, you know, you, you can be really good at whatever thing that you're good at. But everyone else, I mean, they've got their real gifts. But what Paul says is, God's power has nothing to do with you, but the message you speak. It's got everything to do with the God who loves you and the one who died for you. And maybe you feel that pressure in a, in a different way tonight. You, you want the gospel to be powerful and so... You kind of want it to be more attractive to the world around us. So in some ways, you attempt to kind of iron out some of the offensiveness of what God says in His Word. You know, when someone's there and they're like, oh, I kind of worship this way. Well, look, there are many ways to God. Jesus isn't the only way. He's just the way I've chosen. Or perhaps the idea of hell, you're like, oh, man, that's... You know, Jesus would look way better if I could just tone back on the idea of hell. There's there's no eternal punishment. And so you, you don't talk about it and you say, oh, that's just what some Christians believe. Or God's view on on sexuality and gender. You know, it just needs a bit of an update. I'm going to help God out and kind of update what 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 He comes across as. Because really, we all know God is just love. We never therefore speak of His judgment. 
And so we dumb down the reality of the very thing that is the power of God. Or perhaps for you, out of a desire not to look weak and stupid and foolish, you don't change what you say, you just, you just don't say it. You stand silent, trying to hide the fact that you believe in a God that to the world around us looks like a donkey. Friends, what God said to me so clearly in the car that day in 2009, and what He's saying to us all here tonight in His Word is this. It's not about you and me. It's not about our skills and talents and the things that we have to offer because we are not good enough. You are not good enough and neither am I. In fact, what profoundly hit me in the car that day as I listened to 1 Corinthians was that to think that someone could be good enough, that there is someone who is good enough, that I'm not like them, that they should do it and I shouldn't, was actually incredibly arrogant. It was me thinking that someone could be good enough to be used by God. They could be so powerful that God maybe could use them, but not me. How arrogant I was to think that someone could possibly be good enough for God. Listen to what Paul says in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world. Ooh, that's us. To shame what is wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing. To bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one may boast in his presence. The very fact that we don't have life together shows off how great God is. The very fact that we aren't good enough for God is the point that Paul is making here, that we don't need to be because Jesus was good enough for God. The news about Him and what He has done looks weak to the world around us. We look weak and foolish to the world around us. That is so the world might see that God's power is in His Son and the message about Jesus. To think that our skills and talents could somehow make God's Word more powerful. It's incredibly arrogant. Incredibly arrogant. That's what I came to understand that day in the car. I was filled with this false humility. Sure, I thought I wasn't good enough, but I thought it was possible for someone to be good enough, to be effective enough for God, to have enough skill or talent that God could maybe work through them. How arrogant we are to think that God needs us. (laughs) See, for the majority of us, We're just average, middle of the road, mediocre. I mean, let me ask you the question. Has anyone here ever won a Nobel Prize? Just show of hands. Come on, don't be humble, false humility. None of you. It's a bit awkward, not really the best there. What what about this? Has anyone here got a world record? Show show of hands. There might be someone here. Whoa, look at that. Wow, we can talk to you later. Talk to that man. I have another friend who's got a world record. Uh, we had it for a short amount of time. He, he held the record for the person that could throw a washing machine the furthest. <laughs> Kid you not. His name is John McFarlane. Until they watched on the video later and saw it was a foot foul and so it was taken out from him. So there you go. All right. What, what about this? Has anyone ever got a city named after them? Now, none of this, oh, I share the same name as a city. No, no, no. It's got to be named after you. No? Any, anyone? Okay. No one. So we've got one world record. All right. What about this? 
a library. Has anyone got a library named after them? No? That not, again, you share it, but it's named after you, like your name, library. And don't count your one at home. I know like Austin's got a library at home, probably Austin Abara Library. He's got the Dewey Decimal System all lined up. No, 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 okay. What, what, what about this? What about, I'm going to lower it really low. Has anyone got a boat named after them? You know how people write, write the names on the side of boats, your boat, is there anyone got a boat named after them? Yeah, see, hardly anyone. I thought about that. If I had a boat named after me, it'd be just a massive letdown. It'd be Rowan Boat, like <laughs> Rowan Boat. Like, thank you. <laughs> but if you were to line all of us up in this room and you would order us all on, on, on the basis of our skills and abilities and world records and achievements and you put us in a big line in this room, right? Do you know what? As you looked at this room, at least half of us are going to be below average. Statistically, I'm confident with that. Okay? Now, some of you are like, no way, that's not me. I'm not going to be in that bit, right? There's a bit inside us that says, no, I'm not below average, but statistically, you have to be. You know, I heard a stat that says 80% of men think they're better than average drivers. <laughs> right there. Either we're not good at maths or we're just incredibly arrogant. Probably both. <laughs> I want you to imagine that line of where we'd be. Half of us below average, half of us above average, right? I want you to imagine then that Jesus walked into the room. And he lined up on skill and ability and goodness. He wouldn't just be in the next suburb from our little line in this building. He wouldn't even be kind of in the, in the next district. He'd be on another kind of country or perhaps, perhaps he'd need to be on another planet, another galaxy away from us because he is so much better. I mean, he spoke and creation came into being. Anyone else done that? <laughs> no. He, he, he's conquered death and risen from death. He's the creator of all things. There is no one like him. But all the time, we're comparing ourselves to one another. We're looking at one another going, oh, I'm a bit better than you. Guys, look to Jesus. Because we are all way down the end of the line. The gap between the smartest person, the most gifted person in this room, and the absolute dumbest dunce of us is like this compared to the eternity of what it is from that smartest person to Jesus. If God's wisdom was like the world's wisdom, he would have gone somewhere else and not chosen us. But here's the thing, God's power doesn't rely on us, but the news of who Jesus is. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be a Christian and win a Nobel Prize or a world record, although we'll check if he's a Christian later. <laughs> in fact, do you know, the first, in the first hundred years of Nobel Prize winners, 65% were Christians, right? 65% of Nobel Prize winners were Christians in the first hundred years of the Nobel Prize. But it wasn't their superior intellect that made them the most useful to humanity, it was their testimony about the news of who Jesus is and what he had done that made the biggest difference to people's eternity. One of the great implications of this truth that I heard that day in the car in 1 Corinthians that we're hearing tonight here, one of the great implications that, that it has for us as a church is there's no room for smugness amongst us. No room for pride amongst us to say, look at what I've, I can do. Look at, look at where I'm at or, or one-upmanship. No, no room for condescending looks. I can't believe you sinned. Oh, I'm not like that. No, no room for moral outrage at what someone has or hasn't done. None of us have got any reason to boast in ourselves. And there's also no room for comparison either. Comparison is such an ugly, self-centered endeavor. What am I like compared to them? Look at them. I wish I was more like them. Or look how much better I am than them. It's so self-focused. 
the only comparison we ought to have is between us and Jesus. So whenever you find yourself comparing yourself to someone else, how about you fix your eyes? I fix my eyes on Jesus and go, yeah, for sure. It also means there's no room for false humility, for shrinking back and saying, God can't use me. (laughs) How arrogant to think that God can't use you and me. Look at verse 28. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It's from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see that? Everything we have, the gifts, skills, abilities we've been given, all of it is a gift from God. Even our righteousness, that's, that's our, our right standing before God. That's a gift from Him. Our, our sanctification, this is this idea that God makes us more and more like Jesus every year making us more and more holy. That's a gift from God. And it's what He's doing in us and amongst us. It's not ourselves and and our redemption, us being brought back. We couldn't pay the price for our sin, but Jesus did. None of it comes from us. So we have absolutely no reason to boast in ourselves. None. But here's where we get it wrong. We hear the command not to boast in ourselves, and we stop boasting altogether. We see ourselves rightly as not good enough, not wise enough, not powerful enough, and we we stop boasting. But boasting is not the problem. Boasting is godly. Let me say it again. Boasting is godly. Boasting is necessary. The issue is who we boast in. See, the only thing we have to boast in, the only thing we could ever boast in, is what God the Son has done for us on the cross is of who Jesus is, and that because of His love and nothing to do with me, that we can stand forgiven on that last day. What do you naturally find yourself boasting in? Sometimes as a parent, it's kids. You you boast in your children, which really is a reflection of you, right? You're like, oh, my kids are really great at this. And underneath, you're saying, haven't I done a great job? You know, know, maybe your parents have done that to you. Maybe you're a parent that does that. Perhaps it's our grades, we boast in our grades. Yep, just got an A plus every time. Yeah, it was easy, at test. There was a guy in my friend group growing up that in his high school exams, um, uh, basically we're all chatting about what marks we all got, and he wouldn't tell anyone. He was like, oh, oh yeah. And people were like, what did you get? What did you get? And he's like, oh, I went pretty well. And so this rumor started that actually he, he, he won, that he got 100%. And people were saying, oh, do you know this guy? He, he actually, I know this guy that got 100% in his high school exams. And everyone was like, woo. And there was this rumor that everyone was like, wow, this guy is super smart. You know, about 10 years later, I was chatting with him at this other thing we caught up again. I was like, hey, what did you actually get in your exam? He's like, oh, I got like 67. <laughs> I'm like, what? We all thought you got 100. He's like, yeah, I kind of like people saying that. I just, I just didn't, I didn't ever say I got 100, but I just never corrected it. I just let it go on. And, and you know, that, maybe that's how you boast. People have a different view of you and you just... You just let it go on and say, yeah, yeah, well, I didn't say that. I'll just let it keep going that way. <laughs> Perhaps it's the job you got or the amount of money you make or the holidays that you take, the possessions that you have. For me, I find myself boasting all the time in how good a bargain I got. Right? It's the way that I can justify materialism. 
I can be like, all right, oh, look, it was a bargain. It was cheap. I got a good deal. I could sell it for more and kind of give to the kingdom out of it. And I'm going, look, how, underneath, how good am I at getting good deals? I can do this. And I, I find some sense of my identity and being able to get something cheaper than someone else can. Like, what an idiot. <laughs> Friends, we boast in the gifts of the giver, but rarely the giver. The news that God the Son died for an ugly sinner like me and you, isn't that worth boasting in? Isn't that worth pointing people to? Not what we have done, but that Jesus did this. When it comes to boasting, we live below the poverty line. We really do. We use humility as an excuse when actually we just don't want to look foolish and weak to the world around us. That's why we don't boast in Christ, because we don't want the world to know that we actually believe in or something that looks like a donkey on a cross to the rest of the world. And we stand back and we go, oh, I just want to be humble. I don't want to talk about Jesus that way. The gospel is foolishness to the eyes of the world, but it is God's power for salvation. It is how God brings people to himself. And the fact that it's spoken by weak and foolish looking people like you and me who don't have it all together, who have not got life sorted, is part of God's power. It's why he chose Israel as a nation, because they weren't even a nation. He built them together, and they were shockers. They did all this wrong stuff so that the world around wouldn't stand back and go, wow, look how amazing Israel were as a nation. They'd say, wow, what an incredible God. 1 Corinthians 1 was such a defining moment for me. And every time I come to this part of God's Word, it convicts me. It's not about me. It doesn't depend on my skills or strength or gifts, but God's word is his power. And so at the encouragement of others, as we thought through what we ought to do and the conviction of the word of God, here we stand today, simply asking God to use whatever gifts and skills and abilities he's given us so that we might speak the word of Jesus clearly and point to him as weak and fallible and broken and flawless and mediocre as I am. And so often I still feel inadequate, inadequate to lead this church, inadequate to lead my family, inadequate to be a Christian. That's because I am. And so are you. But God is not. He has chosen us, gifted us, empowered us and entrusted us with a message of who Jesus is. And that's why Auckland Evangelical Church is called Auckland Evangelical Church. That word evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, which just means gospel. They could say Auckland Gospel Church, but people think maybe we'd all sing hands and clap and move around on the stage if we put that out the front. So the whole point of why we're called Auckland EV is that the gospel, evangelical, is center. The power, the strategy, the central focus of this church is the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's what we're about. People who are broken but with an amazing God. It's news that doesn't look all that powerful today to the world around us, that looks foolish. But on the day we all stand before God and we're called to account and Jesus stands and says, they trusted in me. That news will be the most powerful thing the world has ever seen because it will determine eternity for anyone who trusts in it. The only thing that will distinguish whether our future holds everlasting death or everlasting life, is how we responded to the news 
of the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing greater, nothing more important, nothing more powerful, nothing more fulfilling than living for Jesus and pointing the world around us to Him. Friends, can I encourage you tonight, as God's Word challenged me, as I opened it that day in 2009, do not let the values of the world rob God's Word of its power. Let His Word define who you are and what you do with every moment of your life and boast in Him. (laughs) What better thing could there be? What more could we be excited about than God the Son dying in our place and giving us life that lasts forever? Let me ask you tonight, let me me challenge you as I challenge myself. How will you grow this year in Jesus-centered boastfulness? How will you grow this year in Jesus-centered boastfulness? Because, friends, that takes incredible humility. Why don't we pray that God would help us to see the wonder of the cross and to boast in Him? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you have made yourself known to us, that we can sit here tonight and open your word and hear the reality of this news. News so powerful that Jesus died in our place and rose again. That means we, if we trust in him, can live forever. We admit that so often we, we boast in all the wrong things. We boast in the gifts. We, we, we love the life we have and we we don't boast in you. We don't point to you. We don't see how great a gift we have in Jesus. Even, Lord, when we feel insignificant and weak, we, we think that we need to be strong. We, we are arrogant. Please forgive us. Forgive us for living life our way. Forgive us for thinking that we need to be good enough for you. And help us to trust in the news of what Jesus has done. Let us go out from tonight. Encouraged from your word at how great it is to live for you and put you at the center of our lives so that we might point the world around us to Jesus. Let us live a life this year as a church and as individuals that boasts in Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.